what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. Do you know Dr. Rick? Dr. Rick was one of the only good things that came out of 2020. Dr. Rick is a parental life coach. He helps young homeowners avoid turning into their parents. Do we really need a sign to live, laugh, and love? Yes. yes. The answer is no. I can help new homeowners not become their parents. Dr. Rick is an invention of Progressive, the insurance company that also brought you Flow and the Sign Spinner. Progressive sells insurance, not exactly a product we associate with personal growth. But selling insurance isn't sexy, and the reasons we need insurance aren't things we want to think about on a regular basis. So insurance companies develop mascots and engage in light world building to make their brands endearing and memorable. So it's in this relational branding and marketing universe that Dr. Rick emerges. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. Now, I'm pretty sure the first time Sean and I encountered Dr. Rick was during an ad break on YouTube. We were immediately transfixed. The ad spots are presented mockumentary style. The airport can be a real challenge for new homeowners who have become their parents. Okay, everybody, let's do a ticket check. Paper tickets. We're off to a horrible start. We We catch glimpses of Dr. Rick working with groups of clients or delivering a motivational speech. And then we get short sit-downs with Dr. Rick, direct to camera, sharing his philosophy and approach. It happens to all of us. We buy a new home and we turn into our parents. What I do? is help new homeowners overcome this. Was that an adjustable spanner? Good choice. Dr. Rigg teaches young homeowners things like how to silence their phones, how to pronounce quinoa, and how to make a sofa more inviting by removing all those unnecessary decorative throw pillows that end up on it. He also coaches his clients as they move through the world, offering suggestions such as there doesn't need to be a coat wrangler at the movie theater, and there's no need to help someone park their car, you know, unless they ask for it. Dr. Rick adds, make me cackle. And listener, I've paused a new Dr. Rick ad so that I could call in Sean to watch it with me. Anyhow, one of the reasons that Dr. Rick is so successful is that he plays on familiar self-help tropes. Dr. Rick is a best-selling author, a motivational speaker, a coach. He's there to help you save yourself from... Well, yourself. The ads nod to the fact that most of us roll our eyes lovingly at our parents' quirks and habits. We don't want to be like them, outdated, obsolete, out of touch. We don't want to be losers. We want to be winners. Today, I'm kicking off a brand new What Works series called Self-Help LLC. Over the next eight episodes, I'll be taking a close look at the business of personal growth and asking, are we all in the self-help business now? We'll investigate the power dynamics of self-help, as well as the shoulds and supposed tos we've inherited from self-help along the way. We'll examine the value structure that self-help exists in and how that shapes our businesses or careers. 
Throughout this series, my intention is to identify the logics of self-help, the beliefs and values that make up its politics, the ways that self-help media shape our identities, and how we can all be more aware of the ways we use powerful personal growth symbols and messaging in how we do business. Now, this series is named in honor of a great book by media studies scholar Mickey McGee called Self-Help, Inc. McGee's work will be our guide through this exploration, along with research, cultural criticism, and conversations with other thinkers and entrepreneurs. You'll hear from writer Kelly Deals, sociologist Patrick Sheehan, voice coach Samara Bay, entrepreneur Jada Selner, brand strategist India Jackson, momfluencer expert Sarah Peterson, Enneagram expert Steph Baron Hall, and a few other surprise guests. I'm going to pilot this episode solo, though, to introduce the topic at large and one of the most ubiquitous frameworks in all of self-help and success literature, winners and losers. Self-help is an $11 billion category in the United States, with many, many, many more billions as part of the larger life improvement ecosystem. Despite the size of the market and the demand for new products, it's a category that often becomes the butt of jokes. In reality, self-help attempts to solve key problems and address real human needs. And self-help is everywhere. Its pervasiveness on bookshelves, televisions, billboards, and ad campaigns makes it an integral part of our culture. We borrow, adapt, and disseminate the messages and media of self-help all the time. Even businesses that aren't in the self-help business use the language of self-help to market and sell their products. Dr. Rick, of course, is one such example, but so is Target relating workout gear to empowerment and after-school snacks to fulfillment. Dove, famously or infamously, markets its products using a message of body positivity and self-acceptance. And DoorDash sells its driver, Opportunity, as a new way to meet your goals. Now, it's probably a good time to pause and ask, What exactly are we talking about when we talk about self-help? For the purposes of this series, I'm defining self-help very broadly, but the general gist is this. Self-help is the category of cultural products that aim to improve on or otherwise change the individual consumer. Cultural products can include, but aren't limited to, media, physical goods, services, advertising, events, and experiences. The basic conceit of self-help is that the potential to turn ourselves into better people comforts and consoles us, suggesting that vast material, social, and personal success are available to anyone who is willing to work long and hard enough, as McGee puts it. Now, there are plenty of reasons to be skeptical of the message of self-help, It rarely acknowledges privilege. It often attributes institutional shortcomings to personal failures. It reduces complex issues to matters of straightforward instructions. But the products and services of personal growth have also been a lifeline to people in pain. Finally, I want to be clear that when I'm talking about self-help, 
I'm not only talking about life coaches, motivational speakers, or books dedicated to the topic. I'm not only talking about messages that cajole us to live our best lives or dream bigger. I'm talking about the vast ecosystem that leverages our fear of failure, our hope for success, and our quest for satisfaction. Further, when I'm talking about self-help, I'm really talking about a particular form rather than an individual message. Media theorist Marshall McLuhan coined the phrase, the medium is the message, back in the 1960s. Put simply, what McLuhan is getting at is that the form of a medium sticks with us more than the content contained in that medium. Now, I see self-help as a medium, a form, rather than a particular message or collection of messages. Self-help as a medium takes on a particular grammar, aesthetic, and tone, and those characteristics saturate almost all of the media we consume today. Whether it's Lizzo saying it's about damn time, Ariana Grande saying thank you next, The Bachelor exploring the quest for lasting love, or REI declaring that a life lived outdoors is a life well lived. The grammar, aesthetics, and tone of self-help find their way into morning television, as well as Instagram posts about cryptocurrency and mothering. McLuhan argues that while there is a straightforward meaning to the message contained by the medium, the medium itself contributes a second message. That second message, and for McLuhan, the more influential of the two, is character. The medium conveys both the straightforward message and a certain character that informs how we relate to it. Here's an example. I just picked up my phone and opened Instagram. No, really, it's it's what I'm doing. Hmm, okay, what do we got here? What do we got here? And the first ad, as I scroll through, that I'm served is for an absolutely gorgeous tea kettle from a brand called Caraway. Seriously, this thing is jaw-droppingly beautiful. Wow. The image of the ad depicts the corner of a kitchen. There are minimalist wood cabinets underneath a white quartz or composite countertop. On one wall, there's a matching wood shelf with sleek white tiles and a herringbone pattern. On top of the counter, there are tea kettles, seven of them, in various colors. Now, nothing about this image screams self-help, right? No. But the form of this ad is designed to paint a picture of a better, more stylish life. The caption also mentions that this kettle is non-toxic. And so the form of this ad also communicates that I can be healthier if I purchase it. The presentation of the tea kettle reminds me that I could be so much more if only I was willing to buy a $195 tea kettle. I'm not, by the way, even though it is beautiful. The medium of self-help is the perfect vehicle for consumer capitalism. What better way to market a product you don't really need than to associate it with bettering yourself? If you're thinking that this series on the business of self-help sounds kind of interesting, but not directly related to your own work, I hope this question gives you pause. No matter the kind of work you do, it's extremely likely that the way you market that work utilizes the medium of self-help, if not the message. And no matter the kind of consumer you are, you're being bombarded with the medium of self-help 
even if you tune out the specific messages. Now, self-help as a medium is neutral. I'm not judging anyone for communicating through this medium. Lord knows I do. At this point, I'm not sure we have much of a choice. But I do want us all to be thoughtful of the message we explicitly or implicitly present through the medium of self-help. Why? Because the medium of self-help amplifies cultural values and messages, some of which you might vehemently oppose. Now, the category of self-help is both as old as time and a very recent innovation. Originally, self-help was a community concept. As recently as the 1970s, self-help referred to how a community might organize to offer aid to its members, especially those who were underserved or disempowered by professional institutions. McGee cites the example of the Boston Women's Health Book Collective, which published the widely read book, Our Bodies, Ourselves, in 1971. The book was the result of organizing around the frustrating, demeaning, and often unskillful care that women received from doctors. As a group, they shared their frustrations and their dismay at how little they knew about how their own bodies worked. They worked together to gather the knowledge they needed to be advocates for their own health. It was self-help via collective action and mutual aid. Now, by the time the Spanish language edition was finally published in 2000, the New York Times made a distinction between mutual help and self-help in its review, noting that our bodies emphasized mutual help over self-help. So within 30 years, we have not only a separation of mutual help from self-help, but a need to specify which category this book belongs to. What happened in those 30 years to make such a big change? It turns out, quite a lot. The biggest shift was a political and economic one, as well as a cultural one. And the shift is named for the two world leaders that wove it into the fabric of our lives, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Reaganism and Thatcherism fundamentally uprooted our relationship to the state and to work. It might be difficult to imagine, but the post-World War II era was marked by massive public investments in building in the United States and rebuilding in Europe. While much of that investment was hard infrastructure, such as the Eisenhower Interstate System or the Council Housing System in Britain, even Richard Nixon, you know, noted socialist, proposed a universal health care plan in 1974. That plan would have created a national public option for those who didn't receive health insurance from their employers, mandated comprehensive coverage, including for mental health, and required employers to provide insurance to full-time employees. So the next time you're at a party and you're asked what Barack Obama and Richard Nixon have in common, well, now you have an answer. Margaret Thatcher came to power as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom in 1975 and served until 1990. Over her tenure, her government fundamentally changed the relationship between citizen and state. 
She sold off government property, privatized utilities and energy production, and deregulated the financial industry. Reagan, inaugurated in 1981, followed a very similar agenda. Now, most of the big changes that Thatcher and Reagan implemented became normal in the following 30 to 40 years, and they're best understood by the cultural legacy they left, the gospel of personal responsibility. The nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Before the 1970s, the citizen and the state more or less worked together to build better lives, at least rhetorically. After the 1970s, the citizen was on their own. And while literature about success and personal fulfillment had been around for a long time, the need to make it or climb the ladder was suddenly an urgent one. It's no coincidence that the 1970s saw an explosion of survivalist metaphors among self-help texts. This is when we get phrases like, looking out for number one, and images such as the battlefield, the jungle, and the poker table as metaphors for life. It's when society is sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, divided into the moral categories of winners and losers. People were anxious. They felt insecure. New technology was transforming the workplace, the home, and the public square. Women, Black people, immigrants, LGBTQIA people, and disabled people were intruding into spaces that had once been safely white and male. In many ways, the 1970s and 80s mirror the period we're in now. McGee writes that today, a feeling of personal security is anomalous, while anxiety is the norm. To manage this anxiety, she says, we've been advised to work harder, to work more hours, and to be constantly at work on ourselves. The project of the greater self-help ecosystem is helping us to navigate the insecurity and uncertainty that have come to define our lives over the last 40 years. It teaches us to be winners in a world of losers, or an artist in a world of automatons. And this is one place that things get real tricky about self-help. Social theorist Nancy Fraser has described this response to our anxiety-inducing, insecure society as a moral hierarchy, an institutionalized social order. And that social order exists in a context of domination and alienation. Here's what I mean. If one is set on improving oneself and another isn't engaged in that same work, then it follows that the person improving is higher in the social order than the person who isn't. From there, it follows that the person improving is better than and can dominate the person who isn't. That potential to dominate, to rise in the social order, provides a reason to continue participating in a system that fails to meet most people's needs. If working the system means one can succeed as a winner or an artist, then one will work the system. The response to the recent student loan cancellation news is clear evidence of this. Those who vocally oppose cancellation prefer to see their lack of debt or their repayment of debt 
as an indicator of their moral superiority. They've done what they need to do to climb the social ladder, and now these kids with their humanities BAs are coming along and skipping the line. They need to be put back in their place. Oof. Now, self-help tries to put a positive spin on this institutionalized social order. Texts rarely draw attention to those on the lowest rungs of the ladder. They might gesture towards the losers as they implore you to become a winner, but it's less an overt threat and more often presented as an opportunity. Yet the message shares the same roots as fear-mongering about makers and takers, blatant disregard for chronically ill and disabled people, and anger about immigration. Taking up the never-ending quest for improvement tacitly acquiesces to the potential that you or I might not be a winner, that we might end up among the losers. What else can we do but continue to work on ourselves? Now, to be clear, I am not suggesting that anyone who seeks personal growth or life advice is doing so out of a desire to be better than other people. But once you see this winner-loser framework in the language of advice culture and the medium of self-help, you can't unsee it. It runs deep. And so we can't step outside the social order and its influence without great care and intent. Now, the other day, I stumbled on a tweet that I just had to screenshot. The tweet itself isn't that remarkable, but it was such a simple distillation of this idea of the institutionalized social order that I knew I needed to archive it, save it for a rainy day. Now, I've edited the wording of the tweet here to maintain the original tweeter's anonymity, but I've retained the meaning. Here's how it goes. Remember, 100 people start. 90 of them stop within 30 days. Nine quit within 12 months. Only one persists beyond that. You'll beat 99% of the competition just by sticking out the game. In other words, there are 99 losers. And to win, you need to outlast them all. The very structure of the tweet is a social order defined by stick Here, the medium of self-help communicates the need to beat the competition and rise to the top. Now, the intent of the tweet, I assume, is to provide some motivation. This Twitter user wants to remind their audience that persistence is a good way to create success. Totally true. But in attempting to speak to the singular person who believes that they can be that one person who outlasts the competition, the user acknowledges that 99 out of every 100 who try will fail. Now, of course, there can be merit in a nevertheless she persisted approach to life or work. But this tweet leaves me with so many questions. Why did the 99 people stop in the first place? Are those people fundamentally unqualified for success? Is there a scenario in which 100 people can start and persist over the long haul? Who said those other 99 people were my competition in the first place? And why is beating anyone the goal? Now, I know this is a very close reading of a tweet that was likely full of good intent and set off without a second thought. You'd be well within your rights to say I'm overthinking things here. 
But that's kind of my point. We're so inured to the winner-loser framework that pointing out the obvious feels like overthinking. I believe this tweet says more about our fear of losing than our desire to win. We've all been one of the 90 who drops out early. We've probably been one of the nine who almost sticks it out. I know I have. And very likely, we feel a sense of disappointment or even shame about that choice. We worry that we don't have what it takes to be a winner. And we feel that way because of the winner-loser framework. This world doesn't look kindly on losers. The threat of losing carries with it predictable consequences. Ridicule, scapegoating, financial ruin, moral bankruptcy. And we tell fables about people who don't win the right way or lose on account of their mediocrity. Winning is a fundamental theme of entrepreneurship. You win customers, win market share, win brand recognition. And winning is also a fundamental theme of the entrepreneurial self. At the end of the day, being a winner means being valuable. Polishing your mindset and redesigning your productivity system is a way to freshen up your personal brand to boost sales or raise prices. We're so used to thinking of everything in terms of the marketplace, the personal growth starts to feel more like product development. If you want to be the winning product, you've got some work to do. Now, there is a lot of good guidance on personal growth out there, and seeking to explore one's inner world or challenge oneself is a powerful move. But without excavating the market forces that turn personal reflection into a resume builder, we'll still encounter that guidance through the winner-loser framework. We'll still justify our endeavor by considering its worth in the free market. I took up running because I wanted to be a winner. Not the winner of the race, but because all the winner entrepreneurs I knew had some sort of fitness hobby. Many were long distance runners. I wanted to be more consistent, more reliable, more willing to do hard things. And I figured that the misery of running more than a single mile would probably do me some good in those departments. Now, a few years later, at the end of my first half marathon, I noticed a woman fall into step just behind me. I had enough experience to know that this was a smart move. She was using me as a pacer and a windbreak. Her goal wasn't to beat me, it was to finish with me. In fact, while I enjoy racing for the chance to set a new personal best or even to medal because, hey, I do like being a winner, a lot, the real reason I race, along with 99% of people who step up to the starting line, is to cross the finish line with a whole bunch of people who are doing the same thing. Races end with a party. We celebrate each other over beers, hot dogs, and sweaty selfies. Running, especially long-distance running, taught me that there's a whole lot more to self-exploration than winning or losing. There's more than how much money I make in a year or how many people subscribe to this podcast. Running faster doesn't require me to beat more people to the finish line. I run longer and faster for me and celebrate everyone who's in it with me. 
I throw out a peace sign and a smile to the other runners putting in miles on the trail with me in the early morning hours. It doesn't matter our level of experience, our pace, our size, or how much it looks like we're going to pass out. We're runners together. The medium of the race could communicate competitiveness. It could easily play into the winner-loser framework. But instead, for the vast majority of runners, we experience the medium of the race as a call to grow together. There's a type of self-help that encourages us to grow apart, to put distance between us and everyone else. That's where the winner-loser framework belongs. But there's also a type of self-help that encourages us to grow together. Because building stronger communities requires individual care, compassion, and self-knowledge. The more we can notice messages that encourage us to grow apart, the more we can shape our own messaging and behavior to grow together. Look, I know I'm not telling you anything you don't already know here. So I'm going to keep it quick here at the end. Watch your social media feeds this week. Consider how the advice that crosses your screen plays into these ideas. Winners and losers, social hierarchy, and market value. And if you're creating content this week, consider whether there's a way to share what you want to say without buying into the winner-loser framework. Next week, I'm talking with Kelly Deals about the female lifestyle empowerment brand. Those people selling that call that empowerment. To me, that is not empowerment. That is just patriarchy, like old patriarchy in a new bottle. It's you switching place from prey to predator. And I want something better from us. I don't think the only true roles available in this world are prey or predator. If you're excited about the Self-Help LLC series, you're going to love my new book. In What Works, a comprehensive framework to change the way we approach goal setting, I unpack the historical, psychological, and economic systems that impact the way we relate to goal setting and offer a radically different approach to growth and planning. Find What Works wherever books are sold. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Emily Kilduff is our production assistant. This episode was written by me, Tara McMullen, and edited by Marty Seafelt and me. Sean McMullen is our executive producer. All of the music in today's episode is from Track Club by Marmoset, a certified B Corp. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock and Conestoga peoples in what is now called Central Pennsylvania. The Yellow House sits on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation. 